Well, this morning we're going to open up the Gospel of Matthew together. This is a new series and uh, one that I'm excited to open up, uh, a series on needing a king. And I've never preached through the Gospel of Matthew before, so this is uncharted territory for me, not even in a Bible study or in uh, any sort of setting. So I've preached parts of Matthew, but not all of it. So we're going to preach all of it, but not all in one service. So uh, <laughs> this will be, be a while, but I want to begin with verse 1 of chapter 1, Matthew, because we're going to introduce this gospel to us and hopefully whet your appetite and show you why the Lord has brought us here to this great book. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The word book here is uh, biblios or biblos. It's where we get the word Bible. This is a book of genealogy. This is a book of origin to, um, to open this great gospel to show that the lineage of Christ is true, that Christ is the perfect king, that he is the ultimate king of kings, And Lord of Lords, he's the ultimate solution to all of our problems. He's the one who can, and the only one, who can solve the true, deepest problem of our world is this king. Because he solves for the sin problem that's underneath all the other societal problems that we keep thinking about and churning on. Ultimately, what I'm hoping is that this Bible book, that this genealogy, that this origin in chapter one begins to prove to us the need for our king and the anticipation that we all have for this king to come and solve our problems He's going to come physically one day and rule in the millennial kingdom. He's going to be seated right in the middle of Jerusalem. I believe those promises are literally fulfilled with the remnant of ethnic Israel. And Jesus will be here for us to worship in this world as he recreates it. But until then, we have this king that we know of because he lives in our hearts, right? We need to reaffirm that. We need to establish his lordship and his kingship, if you will, his dominion and him being our ruler right now so that we don't worry, so that we don't fear, so that we don't dread what's happening, so that we don't lose our way, so we don't mistakenly put our hope in who the next president will be or not be. This is an election cycle year, if you didn't know it. (laughs) We all know it. Everything is measured in one form or fashion by that. Everything, or a lot. And it would be very foolish to put our trust in a man or in even an ideology of government. I align with the one that's most biblical. I, I... really have a strong disdain for liberalism and what leads not only 
our hearts astray, but our kids astray. Um, and for those of you who are grandparents or grandkids astray, we're, we're concerned for our society, society to be grounded in truth and not in lies. So we fight for truth, but ultimately we trust in the king, right? Not in politics. We don't want to be swayed by um, up or down by the results of the election, um, because we want to be trusting in the Lord and be strong. We might have indignation by what's happening or what may happen, but we want all that to be tempered by the Holy Spirit as he proves to us that the King is here, the King is real, and the King is coming. He is the Lord, the one who steps up, is the one um, who's ultimately um, going to probably win the day politically, but um, ultimately, we trust in the Lord. We know there are ideological problems and political problems and society problems and world health problems, but we have a king who is more relevant than all of those issues because his relevance is based on changing hearts for eternity, right? That's the issue. That's the issue. Kingdoms rise and fall. The Lord builds up and he does what? He puts down. He raises people up. He puts people down and he sees things in a broader perspective the Lord does than just a hundred years. He sees things in terms of millennia and everything in terms of eternity. So point one, I kind of want to introduce Matthew by introducing this theme of Jesus being king and how we need him. Point one is he is relevant. He's the most relevant king that ever could be. This is Matthew's point. He is the king of the Jews. This is a very Jewish gospel. Out of the four gospels, this is the most Jewish gospel. There are 60 Old Testament prophecies throughout this grand gospel, and Jesus fulfills every one of them. He was the long-anticipated Messiah of the Jews, and this before us is a series of verses, which you see up through verse 17, as Jesus' genealogy, and we're going to hit that in more detail next week, but it's a family tree, it's a timeline, and if you see in verse 1, the phrase son of David connects Jesus to the Davidic Line that had to be proved out by this genealogy. Jesus is the fulfillment of David, the second David, the perfect king, where David was imperfect. David was a type of Christ, and Jesus is the antitype or the, the fulfillment of David. Jesus is also connected to the son of Abraham in this lineage. So it's sort of moving in a descending order there, son of David, and then to the backwards to the son of Abraham. Abraham being mentioned, again, connects Jesus ethnically to the history of the Jewish people. But when you think of Abraham, you also think of the Abrahamic covenant. The whole purpose behind Abraham being the father of faith and believing was to win the nations. And so there is a hint, even though this is a Jewish book and a Jewish lineage and building Jesus out of the line of David, there's a broader picture of the fact that we were included in that as non-Jews. If you are not ethnically Jewish, we are still all believers, the household of faith. 
This uh, traces masterfully through, you see, the fathers in verses 2 to 4, and we're going to pick that up next time. But verse 5, just to kind of highlight a few things here, it says in Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. You remember reading in your history, and then verse 6, Jesse, the father of David, the king. It's a key marker in this genealogical record. Everything was, was to be traced through the Davidic line. The legitimacy of Christ had to be established. It has to be that he is foolproof. And so then if you'll skip ahead to verse 16, you see it tie together. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ So everything is culminating to the birth of Christ and that all being established in history, in lineage. We're going to pick up on that history next week. I'm very tempted to touch on some things. You have Gentiles, you have have Rahab, you have sinners, you have, you know, you have non-Jews all interlaced in this. And yet it all is beautifully and masterfully tying together to show us how Christ came to us and how all this panoply of believers are, are, are part of this foundation. And it is amazing grace that is, that is shown in this line. But Joseph being um, by law, by law, Jesus's father, not his biological father. We know that Jesus was born of a virgin that Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. But Joseph's connection here is important. It's important to establish the line of, of Jesus' kingship even through Joseph, though it's by law. And then Luke, as we're going to see you know, in parallel next week, that line is establishing Mary's lineage and the bloodline of and the legitimacy of Christ being king through the bloodline of Mary. So you see in Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations from David to the deportation of Babylon. That's the Babylonian captivity of 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. And how generations are defined here in this lineage we'll unpack. But basically it shows 2,000 years of history to back the, the credentialing of Jesus, the credibility of Jesus as your king, as the Messiah who is the king of the Jews and the king of our lives. Matthew's gospel is a Jewish book, as I said, and it points back to David as the ultimate um, picture of Christ who was to come, not Saul. And you remember Saul was the first king, but he was an unbelieving king. David was a man after God's own heart. And so you have you have a history in in the Bible that is establishing things very precisely to a line of believers and a line of, of people who are interlaced building towards this ultimate king. Now, the need for a king is, is, is built all through the Old Testament. I mean, if you sort of lift out of the lineage for a second and just look at your Bible, 
There's always been this begged desire for a king. And that's what we, I think, sense in our own hearts in the way things are turbulent and sort of upside down and and confused right now. We need a king to establish peace again and order and strength. That's why I think I was led to the gospel of Matthew. But I don't want us to be confused to think that things are so bad right now in our country that we have kind of a wrong view of the world over the ages. Uh, for from, Since the beginning of time, since the fall, things have been pretty upside down from time to time and worse off than we are um, even today by far. If you think about you know the Genesis record and the sin that, that got going at such a level that God wiped out the world. And then after that, I was uh, directed to Genesis 11 to the time when All the people were speaking one language and they built a tower and they tried to unite the human race and sort of build this great giant commune of people to establish their lordship. And the tower was a symbol of that. And in the Genesis 11 narrative, it shows it's sort of in an anthropocentric way showing the Lord seeing this tower and going, oh, what is this tower? Well, obviously he knew about it, but he was explaining in the record that this was a picture of the pride of the people. Genesis eleven four. 4, um, then they said, speaking inter-Trinitarian, um, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, come let us, well, no, this is of the people that, that built the tower. Come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. You see the pride there. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they agreed to build a city trying to reach to heaven and God intervenes on that, confounds their speech and scatters them throughout the world. Their pride desired prominence, Genesis eleven six. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all, they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they proposed to do will now be impossible for them. So God interrupted all of that. Reminds us of today's society and the hubris and pride of people trying to raise themselves up. In the book of Judges, uh, that was the overflow, the outflow of sin that had gone amok where people were not following the judges and then the judges were corrupted themselves. The end of the book of Judges, Judges 21, 25, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the judges were not following God. There was a society that was filled with rape and murder and chaos. Judges 19 is one of the most horrific um, displays of that where a woman, I won't go into the details, but you can read it um, with um, a parent's discretion. But um, a woman was basically dismantled and and it was horrible and, and it was It was a graphic display of how horrible things had become in society. They were not following Samuel. And ultimately, the people wanted a king, but they wanted a king in a fleshly way. And so they were saying, we're going to reject Samuel, and we want Saul. So 1 Samuel 8, 19, they refused to obey Samuel. Samuel went to the Lord. He said, I mean, the people wanted, uh, verse 20 of 1 Samuel 8, they wanted to be like all the nations. 
that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They wanted to put their hope in externals and man. For Samuel 9, 1 to 2, it says uh, in verse 2, um, there was a son named Saul, a handsome young man that was not a, a man among the people of Israel, more handsome than he from his shoulders upward. He was taller than any of the people, tall and handsome. So they wanted power. They wanted they wanted this this man to be powerful for them. And ultimately Saul as an unbeliever, even though at points it shows him expressing faith, I don't think Saul was a believer, the first king. And he offered an un, ungodly sacrifice and he was approaching the Philistines and Saul, I mean, Samuel was supposed to offer the sacrifice and he did it. And ultimately because he acted in unbelief, The kingdom of God was literally predicted to be ripped in two, and it was a northern and southern kingdom. Saul was pictured as grasping for Samuel's robe and it ripping apart, which showed that the kingdom of God was being ripped apart. You know, as Christians, we know that King David represents a better king. King David was no example of perfection or virtue and sinned in egregious ways, obviously, but he at the same time was a believer and we want a Messiah. We should rejoice at the same time for our country. We appreciate the freedoms to worship. We appreciate um, the goodnesses and the sacrifices that have gone into this, this nation that we get to live in. But we need to remember with the highs and lows of our country that our citizenship is not here, right? That we have a king in our hearts. The king has come in the past. He's exercised his lordship through the theocracy in the present. He exercises his lordship in our hearts at conversion. And then in the future, there is the millennial kingdom. And we as aliens and strangers sort of persevere through this world, right? We're just persevering through this world, waiting for the ultimate establishment of the king. But as we wait for that, we need to recognize that the king is sovereign. Not only is he relevant to our culture, just like he was relevant in the time of um, the Tower of Babel. He was relevant in the time of the judges. He was relevant in the time of Saul when Saul was trying to kill King David, who was to come after him, the believing king. He was relevant. He was relevant. He's relevant today. And then secondly, he's sovereign in this relevance. The entire emphasis of Matthew is God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is a phrase that's mentioned 32 times through this book. The kingdom Basileia in the original language is kingdom. Um, In the three other gospels, Mark, Luke, and John, the kingdom of God is only mentioned five times. This is the kingdom of God book of the Bible. It is also phrased the kingdom of their father is found in Matthew, the kingdom of my father. And then Matthew has his own designation of the gospel as the gospel of the kingdom. There are parables that Jesus teaches on the kingdom of God. You know that from Matthew 13, the kingdom is like, the kingdom is like, the kingdom is like. We're going to learn about the kingdom of God. We need to be thinking about the kingdom of God during a time when we feel like our kingdom and our world is fragile and frail. The kingdom of God is at, at center of Christ's teaching. 
John MacArthur said this, for Matthew, it's important that God is sovereign over all and that his rule will one day be brought to a glorious consummation. Present and future aspects of the kingdom underlie a great deal of what's written here. The kingdom of heaven is spoken of in terms of Christ when he was here and he spoke of himself coming and bringing the kingdom and he did as he walked around, he healed the sick, he rose the dead, he made the blind to see, the deaf to hear, he cast out demons. That was a picture of the kingdom that was right then and there with Christ. When he spoke, he was speaking as a king. He was veiled in his servanthood, veiled in humility. He had no place to lay his head. He was a rejected king as he walked the earth. Matthew speaks again and again of how the Jews rejected this king. He was rejected in terms of his miracle ministry. He was rejected by the Pharisees. He was rejected by Satan himself as Christ rejected all the kingdoms of the world that were offered to him and the temptations in the wilderness. He was rejected while he was on the cross. He was, he was beaten near to death and, and then hung and, and suffocated on the cross. Only the thief repented. Only the centurion at the death of Christ when people were coming out of their graves said, truly, this is the Son of God. Uh, Jesus, while on the cross, was even rejected intertrinitarianly by the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Rejection is a major theme, but at the same time, the king was here. And Matthew not only speaks of the kingdom who had come, but also the king who is coming. The king who is coming, who would one day rule. And David's lineage proves that Jesus was to fulfill that. He's also proven in Matthew as the sovereign over the universe. He's called the son of man. Every time you hear son of man, don't think of just the humanity of Christ. Also think of Christ being divine, the one who is ushered into the presence of God the Father with universal authority. Daniel 7 calls Christ the son of man. He's the ruling and reigning Messiah, Daniel 7, 13 through 15. It's the son of God and the son of man. Son of God also, speaking of Christ's divinity, he's called master, the curios word in the original language. He's the Lord. He's called wisdom in this book. He's Emmanuel who is with us. And he demands for believers to submit to him as king. So not only is his lordship and kingship comforting for us as believers, His lordship and Jesus being king demands there be followers who are submissive. There's a demand for discipleship. The Lord builds his church as king over all of it. The central personality of all of the Old Testament is Jesus. He's promised his kingdom all the way back to Genesis 3.15 where there was the promise that Satan's head would be bruised meant that Jesus' establishment would, as king would happen throughout all of eternity. Genesis 49.10 speaks of that, how everyone will come under his righteous scepter in obedience. 2 Samuel 7.16 
Your throne shall be established forever. Psalm 2, 1 to 4, he's called the anointed as the nations rage. Psalm 2 is a psalm to read in, in days like these. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. But the Lord will burst their bonds. He will cast away the, their cords from us. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. I read Psalm 2410 about the king of glory. Psalm 110, 1 and 2. Um, the Lord says to my Lord, speaking of the father and the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. This is our great Lord. Out of the house of David, Isaiah 713. This king was to come, Isaiah 7, 14, from a virgin um, to be conceived as a son who is called Emmanuel. Micah 5, 1 to 5, speaks to all of this as well. Um, He's coming in strength, uh, verse 4, in the majesty of the name of the Lord. Comes to bring peace and he's coming out of Bethlehem. You know, none of the Old Testament prophets could really predict the full nature of who Christ was. I mean, one of the great blessings of going through a gospel is just to draw near in intimacy to the Lord week after week after week and in community together and just sense God's presence. We need him. He is our king. He is your king and your Lord. First Peter 1, 10 and 11 speaks of this. This is the the king who's the king over the gospel where the angels long to look and tie everything together. One event after another affirms that Jesus is true and that all of the requirements of these prophecies were fulfilled and all of the false teachers are unmasked because no one else could rise to the precise fulfillment that Christ did as king. Matthew presents Jesus as the sovereign, as king. Mark presents him in opposite detail as the servant. Luke presents Jesus as the son of man. And John presents Jesus as the son of God. It's interesting to me that John has no genealogy, right? When you think about it, Matthew, look at this genealogy. It's a Jewish book. You have John. His goal was to present Christ as divine, and so the genealogy is John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word um, was with God, and the Word was God. That's the genealogical record for Jesus. In the beginning means he's always been and is God. Whereas Matthew is precisely detailing that this is the Messiah. Basilea kingdom is used 144 times it, Throughout 27 books of the New Testament, the the Greek verb of that to reign is used 10 times here. He's a sovereign who is a servant, fully man and fully God at the same time. The the word, let me me ask ask this question just to kind of open up the book of Matthew. Who is Matthew? Matthew, the phrase, I mean, the name means gift of the Lord. He was one of the 12 apostles. He was a tax collector and his um, sort of sinner's name before Christ was Levi. And so you'll see the other gospel writers um, call him Levi. Speaking of his former life, Matthew was written prior to the destruction of the temple. That's pretty easy to discern as you read 
through the temple dynamics here. So that probably puts it around 80, 50. We don't know. Obvious Jewish flavor, manners and customs for the Jews are confronted and spoken throughout this book. There are five sermons that are are displayed through the Gospel of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. There's a missionary discourse, then the um, parables of the kingdom we talked about. He also exposes the conflict between himself and the Pharisees, and that's a sermon that we don't want to miss, Matthew 22 and 23. Then the Olivet Discourse, the end times. Israel is shown throughout this book as rejecting Jesus, but he is the victorious king nevertheless. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew 24, sometimes I like to go to the end just to bracket this thing. Look at verse 21, because we're talking about needing a king during tribulation times. We're not in the tribulation. This is nowhere near the um, virulence and, and... I don't know, the, the depth and scare of the tribulation, but it, we're, we're hinting at that right now, I think, maybe. Things are so, they're so quickly turning. That's the, that's the dynamic that I see. Everything turns week to week, day to day. You know, what will be? What's going to happen? Well, it's sort of what Jesus preaches on in Matthew 24 in his end times sermon. There will be great tribulation, verse 21, such as not been has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and ever will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. It's a curious phrase. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, and there he is, do not believe it, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect course that wouldn't be possible but so see i've told you beforehand and then if you skip down to verse 29 look at this immediately after the tribulation of those days the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man here it is this is the reflection of daniel 7 That prophecy will be fulfilled and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from the end of the end of heaven, from one end of heaven to the other. This is all relevant, is it not? This is all real to us and powerful to us. For perspective on how dangerous the times were when Matthew wrote this, I think it's important to dig into a little bit of the historical context. Things are dangerous now. They were dangerous then. It's important to understand that. Who was Matthew? Well, he was a tax collector, meaning he was hated. Matthew was a Jew, but he was under the... um, the employment of the Roman government. The Roman government was the enemy of the Jews. They did not want the Roman Empire in their business. And so the way the Roman Empire kept control was through oppression, soft coercion, and hard coercion through taxation. And the picture of taxation came through people who were conscripted, even Jews within their culture, doing it in the name of Rome, taking money from people. Now, 
ultimate areas through, geographically would be auctioned off and, and, and founded and, and taxing would happen at 5%. But any money above the 5% tax, the toll tax, which was income and ground tax, was extorted by the tax collector who was a publican, a hired gun, a known trader, somebody ranked with sinners, prostitutes, and Gentiles. This was Levi who became Matthew. Well, Levi's sitting there, and guess what the story says? The story says that Jesus passed by Levi and saw a man um, in verse 9 of Matthew 9 called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me, and he rose and followed him. Verse 10 says, Jesus reclined at the table, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and the disciples. The tax collectors were ostracized from temple worship. They weren't invited in. And when Jesus had come, these tax collectors saw the sham of what they were doing, and they followed Jesus in repentance. There's always hope. No matter how bad things are, there's hope. There's hope. Jesus is the king. And Matthew is very humble to this king, addressing himself in third person only through this whole book. Staying humbled behind the scenes. I think Matthew knew that as bad as things were, the hope of this genealogical record is that Jesus being king is foolproof. Literally foolproof. There is no way that this could not be Jesus. If there's any sort of holes that can be poked in this genealogical record, then suddenly it's all a sham. We need Jesus to not be a sham, and we know he's not. We know he's real. We know he's the ultimate king. We're going to build on this next time.